Thanks. What phenomenal worship, eh? That song, Hallelujah. I don't know about you, it transports me to heaven every time. I don't mean that literally, but um, just something beautiful about that. Singing the song, we will sing for eternity um, and not get bored of it. Um, brilliant. We're going to continue on 1 Corinthians 10. We read segments of it. You might like to have some of that passage open in front of you. Um, about a year ago, um, this place arrived on our horizon, Keelum Farm Shop. Has anyone been there? Yeah, one or two. It's great. Uh, I, I'm not sponsored by them, I promise. Um, but it's, it's really good. You go in and, and sell everything, you know, food-wise. Uh, Jacob, don't turn me down a wee smidge. I'm just echoing a bit. Um, you go in, and in the butcher's section, there's a big chalkboard behind all the really lovely bits of meat. Meat. Men's weekend. Um, <laughs> and on the board... It tells you all about the meat that's in front of you. It tells you uh, which, um, you know, when it was slaughtered, when it was butchered, which farm it came from, what the farmer was the day it was born, its likes, its dislikes, what kind of music it dances to. It tells you anything you want about this particular piece of meat. And we're into finding out about you know, what, where our food comes from. And whether it's because we want to know whether it's fair trade or whether it's organic, whether it's not GM, whether it's a freedom food or whether it's definitely British, it doesn't matter. We want to know the source of where our food comes from quite often, don't we? And then we feel happier about it munching into our burger, don't we? Well, there's a problem that's going on in Corinth at this time. And it's one that, you know, Paul has received a letter from the people in Corinth, from the church in Corinth, saying, these are some of our issues, here's a question for you. And the question is actually referred to in chapter 8, which it'd be good to read both 8 and 10 together at some point. And it talks about food that's been sacrificed to idols. And that was the issue in Corinth, because what was happening was, you know, you brought your, your offering to, uh, to the temple, if you were a pagan, to Aphrodite or to whoever, and uh, the, the, the animal that you sacrificed, it was dealt with in a couple of different ways. Part of the, the food would have been burnt on the offering to the god or the goddess. A part of the portion would have gone to the priests, and they would have had that as their, their sustenance. But a bunch of it would have gone to the next door shop, which was the butcher's. So if you wanted meat, you would go to the butchers and there was a fair chance that you would possibly get, um, not necessarily fair trade or organic, you'd probably get sacrificed meat, set aside non-sacrificed meat. And so for the church in Corinth, who for a lot of them, they just got rid of this whole pagan society and idolatry, didn't know what they should do as Christians. And there are two rival kind of factions going on in, first, in the church in Corinth. And there's one side who are the rigorous legalists, and another side are the riotous libertarians. And the rigorous legalists are the ones who really need to keep calm and follow the rules. They need to know what's right, what's wrong, everything like that. Then there's the libertarians who are laid back, man. Keep calm because anything goes. We're free, aren't we? And earlier, they are called weak and strong because of their conscience sake. In chapter 8, both helpfully and not helpfully, Paul labels them as this. Those who need these regulations are considered weak. Their consciences are weak. They need some structure. And those who can see beyond it have embraced their freedom or have got strong consciences. And so in these two competing ideas within the church, they're saying, what shall we do in this area of meat that's been sacrificed to idols? 
And there's no real clear answer in Scripture because actually the majority of life for them and for us is lived in the grey, isn't it? It's not black and it's not white. It's not yes and it's not no. It's a maybe, possibly, all these different shades of grey. And I'm not talking about the book. A lot of life is lived in the grey. Paul has been pretty clear on some particular issues. And we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. But a lot of life is lived in the grey. And, and this passage, this chapter, in fact, a lot of Corinthians, is Paul addressing particularly those who consider themselves strong, who fully embrace the concept of freedom and maybe gone a bit too far. So he's addressing the strong, those who think that they've got it sorted, they're solid, they know what they're doing, they've got a great grasp of the gospel. And his message and the first main point of this passage is found in chapter 10, verse 12. And it's a warning. Now, whenever I was growing up, we didn't have the warning, be careful. We had the warning, mind yourself. Or if you're my mother, mind you yourself, just in case you didn't realize she was talking to you. Mind you yourself. Take care, beware, watch out, be careful. That's what the warning is. Have you ever been to a restaurant and uh, someone comes with a, something like that big hot plate and comes along, puts it in front of you and says, the plate is hot, be careful. What do you do? You totally disbelieve them and go, Woo, yes, it is hot. <laughs> or someone's got a freshly painted wall. They say, don't touch wet paint. What do you do? It is wet, you know, because we don't learn the lessons of the past. The, the waiter could be coming up with burn marks across their arm because they've scalded themselves. It's a hot plate. It's a really hot plate. Or it could be wearing kind of protective clothing. It's really hot. And you go, is it? <laughs> yes, you're right. It is. If you think that you are strong, standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't fall. And Paul uses the example of the people of Israel in this passage. And he says, these are your ancestors. These weren't ethnically Jewish people. So he's saying, these are your spiritual ancestors. You are part of the continuation of the story. In fact, you're part of the culmination. You're living in the age of the Messiah. But you are part of this story. So consider the lives of those who went before you and take heed of what happened with them. Because Israel, in this momentous story, they'd been delivered by, via the ten plagues. They'd been delivered from Egypt and slavery and bondage and torture into the desert with God who was leading them by a cloud, a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could see God's power and his presence, his Shekinah glory was there. When they came to the Red Sea, the sea was blasted by the nostrils of the Lord, just opened up and they walked through on dry ground. They saw his protection. And whenever they were hungry, there was quail and there was manna provided by God. When they were thirsty, there was water that came from a rock. And they had the provision. It's interesting. These are the, the peas that we pray for at beacons each time. We pray for God's protection, his power, his presence, and his provision, and a few others. They saw all this firsthand. They experienced it, and they were exposed to the reality of God. And yet it says God was not pleased with them. And in fact, all maybe but two of the people of that is, those Israelites actually achieved the promised land. Why was that? Well, it's because they took their, their liberty that God had provided for them. And instead of um, 
using it for good, they, they, they mistook their, li- their, their liberty for license. And so they became involved in idolatry in Exodus chapter 32, where they create a golden calf to worship because they needed something tangible. Who is this God anyway? We, we, we need an idol to worship. And then it says that they indulged in eating and drinking this sacrificed food. And then it says they got up, actually the Greek says they got up to play. You just think that there's somewhere, play. They got up to pagan revelry. What that means, they got up to orgiastic feasts. It says they were involved in sexual immorality when they mixed with the Moabites. And when they got up to kind of sexual morality with them, they got intrigued by the Moabite gods. And they started worshipping the Moabite gods. They tested God when they said, well, can you provide for us? And God got angry and said, yes, I can. Here you go. They grumbled in Numbers 21. They grumbled saying, but the food was better back in slavery. I'm getting a bit sick and tired of manna and quail, even if it is miraculous. And they grumbled and they complained and they looked back and wanted to go back to a place of slavery. What had happened? They lost out on what God had promised due to complacency. They got comfortable. They just presumed too much on God's goodness. Complacency led to overconfidence. And that's the, the worry that Paul has for the Corinthian church who grasped aspects of this being, this freedom that they don't become complacent about it. So he says, mind yourself. I don't know if anyone's been to this place. This is Carcassonne in, in southern France. Has anyone been? It's, yeah, fantastic place. I'm not sponsored by their tourist board either, I promise. It's an amazing medieval city that's been kind of um, fixed up so you can see all the ramparts, all the walls, two concentric walls that make it look incredibly impregnable. But the thing is, these castle walls, no matter how thick they are, no matter how tall they are, no matter how strong they are, if one part of it's got a hole in it, it's insecure. If there's one part of that wall that is weak or it's got a gap, it will be insecure regardless of what the rest of it is like. Be aware of weak points, vulnerabilities. You may think, I've made it. I'm absolutely sorted. But I guarantee you will have weaknesses. You will have vulnerabilities. So what are they? You don't need to share just at the moment. What are your weaknesses? What are your vulnerabilities? Do you have any? Because genuinely, I wonder whether some people think, I don't think I have any weaknesses. Let me tell you. Ask the audience. (laughs) Phone a friend. Or ask the closest friend, the Holy Spirit, what are my weaknesses? Where am I vulnerable? And then tell someone. Because the power of accountability is so vital. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about um, sexual immorality, and I referred to um, the, the issue that is plaguing a lot of people in the church, and that's pornography. And what I've noticed from things I've read and experiences I've had with some people that actually you do not consider that you've ever got this area sorted. This is just an example. There are many other areas and weaknesses that people have. But for people who feel that they've, they've eventually got it sorted, you don't consider that it's never a weakness. It is always going to be a chink in your armor because as soon as you think that you're invulnerable, you're immune, that is when you are at your weakest. You need people who will firm you up Overconfidence, everything sorted, not a problem anymore. Paul says, be really careful. Mind yourselves. 
goes on to say about this thing, temptation. Perismos is the Greek word, and it's translated temptation here. And we immediately think it's the last donut on the plate, but actually... It's got many aspects. It's got about the idea of temptation, yes, but it's got a, an idea of test, and it's got an idea of trial. Like a challenge is probably a better word. No challenge has come to you which is not common to all people. A challenge to your faith security, a challenge in your situation to apply your freedom in Christ. It's nothing new. Israel had the same trials. Other Christians around the world got the same tests. Even Jesus faced temptations. So don't think that you are immune to these things. Don't think that you are so holy and sorted and strong that you're immune. Because that's when it's dangerous. It sounds like a pretty dark picture, but there's amazing truth. God is faithful. Even in our feelings, in our faithlessness, God is faithful. It says he will not let you be tested, tried, tempted, or challenged beyond what you can bear because temptation, trials, is a choice. A temptation is always a choice. And it's, you're told you're not going to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And I can hear some people, even inside me sometimes, going, yes, but I just can't resist. Do you ever say that in your head at all? Don't leave me hanging. <laughs> I just can't resist. I, I, it's too powerful a temptation for me. Well, there's two ways of looking at that. One, it's a downright excuse because you end up doing exactly what you wanted to do in the first place. Oh, it was too hard to resist. Actually, you chose to not resist. That's the first one. Maybe it's an excuse, I can't resist. Or maybe it is actually a habit, or maybe even an addiction to a substance, an action, an attitude, a habit, maybe an addiction to, to people or, or certain thought patterns. These things don't happen on their own. They are usually the culmination of many, many choices that have got you to a point where it is hard to choose anything else but where you started from. Do you get that drift? That's why it's hard when you're addicted or you've got bad habits. It's not that you develop bad habit out of nowhere. You've made choices along the way that's got you there. The Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation. Some wise Alex said, yes, because we do a good enough job ourselves. We do, don't we? So whenever we have got these trials, temptations, areas of weakness, seek help, whether you're using, I can't resist as an excuse, or whether it's a reality and you need help to beat that. The good news is the more positive, uh, godly choices you make, the easier those choices are to make in the future. And the promise is God will provide a way out. The actual word has a root. God will provide an exodus for you. And the story of the Exodus, if you know it, it was not an easy route. Whenever you're tempted to have that last donut and it's really bad, God's not going to provide you with a hot chocolate fudge sundae as an option, an alternative. Because that removes the temptation. You will not necessarily have the temptation removed. You're not, God will not avoid the temptation, but he'll give you the ability to stand up to it. The ability to survive it. He says, if you don't take this seriously, you become complacent. And Paul, using the example of Israel, says complacency, thinking you're sorted, not seeing your weak spots, can so easily lead to compromise. And for Israel and for the first century um, church, the compromise was too easy to go down the path of idolatry again. 
the path for idolatry. In verse 14, Paul says, flee from idolatry, run away as fast as you can from it. It echoes in chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Those are the kind of foundational things he says you must flee from. But what about these gray issues? What about this meat that's sacrificed to idols? It kind of doesn't fit in the the box. The meat, the temples, the feasts, the marketplace, the worship meals. Well, in chapter 8, you you may want to have a look at it, chapter 4 to 8 in particular. In verse 7, he says, people, it gives you an idea. People are still recovering from idol worship. And they're still attributing power to the idol and to the food that's used in its worship. And the strong ones, Paul takes, that he says the strong ones have taken Paul's teaching and they've known that the idols are nothing. They're just bits of wood and bits of stone and bits of, of, of metal. And he said he's found that there's nothing to these idols. There's nothing wrong with the meat. So therefore, you might as well just go along to the feasts. And the feasts were in the temples. And you had a little bit of worship, but it's okay because it's to nothing. It's to no one. It's okay, isn't it? Paul says, flee from sexual immorality in chapter 6 because there's no such thing as casual sex. He then says, flee from idolatry because there's no such thing as casual worship. No such thing as casual worship. And Paul uses the example of communion. We eat And we drink the bread and the wine. We're going to be doing that a little bit later on. And there are two key aspects of communion that Paul refers to here. First of all, you're a partaker in Christ, in his sacrifice for you, in his body, in his blood. They're symbolic, but they're charged with a certain level of worship. You're engaging and partaking with God. But as well as that, you are engaging and partaking and becoming a partner with one another as you eat the one loaf. As you drink the one cup, it's a community thing as well. And he says, don't eat or drink casually or carelessly. And that's expounded on in the next chapter. Because in verse 20, he goes on to affirm that idols, they're just wood, they're just stone, they're just metal. That's all they are. But the worship, the active involvement in those rites there's actually something a little bit more malevolent behind it all. So although these idols of Jupiter, of Aphrodite, of whoever, they're just rocks and stone chiseled by people, there's a puppet master behind that, and that is the dark reality of demonic forces. So the sacrifices that people have made to Aphrodite, thinking it's the beautiful goddess of beauty, there is actually a malevolent demon enjoying the worship that should have been given to God, but is being directed somewhere else. There is a real negative evil reality, a spiritual reality behind these things. The spiritual reality, these enemies of God, they are not equal to, but they're certainly in opposition to God. And you cannot worship and fully participate in communion with Christ and each other and then go and do exactly the same with those of demons. It's, uh, I've got this, this idea that Paul must have been really familiar with Matthew's gospel, particularly chapters five and six. There are echoes of it all over the place. And one here says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, the God of money. That's what Jesus said, and Paul is echoing it here. You can't have a foot in both camps. The reason being is that, do you know what? Whenever you're a child and you've got a biscuit and you've got a brother or a sister and your mum or your dad says, it's nice to share. 
isn't it? It's nice to share and you begrudgingly break it in half and you take the bigger half. God doesn't share. God doesn't share. Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. He doesn't share his glory with demons. So therefore we cannot celebrate communion openly with God to meet with God and worship and then go and flagrantly offer ourselves up to other idols. So in relation to the danger for those who need to avoid the sacrificial system, there is a reason why it's sensible for them not to. There is a dark puppet master in the background that is ready to receive their worship. And the same with us today. Whatever our potential idol is, the action, the activity, the object, the habit, or the person is not necessarily evil in itself, but the force wanting you to replace God with whatever that is, is evil, is malevolent. What is it that's distracting you from being the person God wants you to be, from doing the things God wants you to do, from going and sharing fellowship and communion with another person, with going to worship? What is it that's getting in your way? Because although that activity may not be evil, there's something behind it which is enjoying the fact that you're not worshiping God. Mind yourself. Mind yourself. We move on. Paul takes the next section. He takes that libertarian mantra again that he's referred to in chapter 6. Everything is permissible. Everything's permissible. And you say, not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible though, but not everything is constructive. It's very easy to read this and go, well, it's to do with me, isn't it? So anything's permissible, but it may not be good for me. It may not be um, beneficial to me, may not be beneficial or constructive to me. It's easy to read that about yourself, but the next bit doesn't let you. Don't seek your own good, but the good of others. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial or constructive to you or to other people. This whole passage is not about how you struggle with temptation and conscience, but how you look after other people who do. And our responsibility is to look after the good of others. So Paul goes on, you can eat whatever you want in the marketplace without feel holding a full-scale inquiry to find out when it was slaughtered, who sold it, to where, to when, when it was cooked and when it was sold. You don't need to. You can thankfully receive this offering and go, thank you, Lord, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You can go to an unbeliever's house and they present you with a meal. And you don't need to say, so can you tell me where this is from because otherwise I just won't be able to eat it. You eat it. Because table fellowship is so important in those days. You eat it and you give thanks to God. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Regardless of whether it's been taken and abused and used. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But. This is where it got confusing. I started reading it going, what's he on about? But if the source of the food is sacrificed to an idol and it's been pointed out to you, not to inform you for interest's sake, but by a brother or a sister for whom it is an issue that it's been sacrificed to an idol, then don't you eat it. Not for your sake or for your conscience or for your salvation of your soul, but for their sake. A person's conscience is not law for all, and a person's freedom is not license for all. 
So if a person feels that they cannot eat this meat or do whatever, because for them it would take them down a path which isn't good for them, then it's wrong of you as a Christian brother or sister to go, well, I'm going to have it anyway in front of you. You say, no, it's okay, we'll not, we'll not do that. But in the same way that person's liberty, that person's freedom, you shouldn't be saying, well, you have to do what I do because I'm free and you're not, you're weak, I'm strong, copy me. Not for your sake, but for others. This is not about right and wrong. It's not about sin and salvation, but about what is of benefit and constructive and helpful and loving for your fellow Christian. And unfortunately, these are really gray areas and these are some of the areas that are gray. For some of you, it may some of these may be very black and white. But because not all of you think they're black and white, that necessitates that these are in the gray. If you follow me. <laughs> Should Christians drink? Should Christians get drunk? Should Christians smoke? Should they swear with culturally relevant swear words? Should they eat halal food? Should they eat kosher food? Should they go to the movie? Should they watch an 18 movie? Should they play the lottery? Should they use lottery funds? Should they join the army? Should they fight? Should they kill for their nation? Should they date a non-Christian? Christians, well, should really use fair trade, shouldn't they? And they should make sure that all your investments are completely ethical. You shouldn't shop on a Sunday or even play sport. And Christians should vote stay. Or Christians should vote leave. These are gray areas that can cause massive disruption and, dif- and division in the church. If one person insists this is law, another person says this is freedom. How do we handle these gray areas? For some, some of these will be an issue. For others, they're not. For others, they're a significant problem of conscience. For others, They're not. So how do we proceed in the grey areas? Now, when they say grey areas, Paul has been very clear up to this point, and if you haven't been to the services over the past few weeks, he's been pretty black and white about a few things. There is no idolatry. There is no sexual immorality. There is no grey areas in that. There are blacks and whites. There are yeses and noes. There are rights and wrongs. But there's an awful lot of grey in the middle. It would be fantastic if we opened up the imaginary book of Hezekiah chapter 3 verse 5 and it says, And thus the Lord saith, Vote, leave! (laughs) Or that Jesus said, You know what? Blessed are the poor and I'm totally pro-Europe. It would be great, wouldn't it? But it isn't as clear as that. So how do we act? These are the two kickers that Paul gives at the end. Whether you eat or drink. Whether you vote leave or stay. Whether you swear or not. Whether you have once in a while drunk a bit too much vino or not. Whether you go to Keelum on Sunday to get your lunch or not. Whatever you do, first of all, do it for the glory of God and not for your own selfish opinion that you think is right, just for the sake of it. Do it for the glory of God and his priorities. And the second thing is, whatever you do, don't let it be a stumbling block for your brother or your sister. Whatever you do, if it's going to cause damage to your brother or sister, don't be held to ransom. It's not that you have a law upon you, apart from the law of love, which is I need to look after you and your weakness and your vulnerability. 
Consider what is of benefit to your brother and sister and what is harmful to them. This is your responsibility. Using your freedom in Christ, not to be constrained by legalism and not to indulge the pursuit of your rights and your preferences, but to choose what is helpful to others to build them up. Chapter 8 and chapter 10 um, is often paraphrased as being called the weaker brother argument. It's quite funny, when I was growing up, weaker was one of those phrases that meant brilliant. So it's like, the weaker brother, but actually weaker and stronger. This is the weaker brother argument. I think it's too simplistic to say that there were a bunch of Christians in one team who were weak and a bunch of Christians who were strong. It wasn't like there was two different teams. But with different situations, scenarios, different gray areas, different weaknesses and different vulnerabilities. One person, for one person it's a trial, it's a temptation, it's a test, it's a challenge. For another person it's not a problem. And for each person has got different weaknesses and areas of challenge and grayness and areas where you are weak or where you struggle. And for others it may not be. And our responsibility is to help those who've got weaknesses. Trusting and believing they're going to help you and yours. I was asked a couple of times, what are you preaching on this week? And I can only say 1 Corinthians 10 because I couldn't paraphrase exactly what I was trying to get at. But here's my, my attempt. Paul says, don't get complacent with your position with God. Don't get overconfident that you've got it sorted and that you, are, you can't be touched or untouchable. Because if that's your attitude, you are in danger of missing your weak points. And if you miss your weak points, you're in danger of compromise. Compromise to you and because you're part of the body of Christ, compromise to others. Instead, look for what's constructive not necessarily for you, but what's constructive for others, for your brothers and your sisters. And the trust, that love, the agape love, is that they will be doing the same for you. I said the title of this kind of is Mind Yourself. Actually, it's more Mind Yourselves. I don't want to quote Jerry Springer because I don't like him, but at the end of this, his programs, he used to say, take care of yourselves and each other. So I want to say our responsibility in black and the white and in the greys is not to fight for your rights, but to mind yourselves. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you have given us the church, your beautiful bride of Christ to belong to to be part of. Lord, we live in a mucky, gray world that you've called us to be lights in. And Lord, we have different opinions and different weak spots, different strengths and different vulnerabilities. Lord God, will you imprint on us the importance of looking out for each other and their weak spots and to do nothing which will enhance will hamper or stumble our brother or sister. And Lord, may we have the courage to open our lives to the examination of your spirit to see where our weak spots are. To be willing to be vulnerable with others in order to firm up those walls so we don't get complacent, that we don't fall down to compromise for ourselves and don't lead others. But Lord, show us how to construct 
constructively bless others. So Lord, as we gather around your table, may we remember that we are here as your body, that we commune with you, we meet with you, but we also meet with our brothers and sisters. And so, Lord God, as we gather, may we remember what you did for us, God. When you say that regardless of what you carried in the past, you come to me. Lord, regardless of what idols we have had in the past, whatever idols we carry with us now, the potential to fall down, we come before you, God. Will you take us as we are? Come to the 